Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Clam. Well, hello. <laughs> I didn't see you there. Probably because this is a podcast. <laughs> I'm Jamie Flam. Welcome to Gatekeeper. So, if you've been listening to the show regularly, you know that I like to start each episode with a meandering, jokey ramble of some kind with some sound effects to punctuate the hilarity. Well, after my conversation with today's guest, who was recently featured in a Fast Company article about efficiency, I decided that maybe spending five hours to write a two-minute long probably sometimes pretty self-indulgent sketch that is likely being skipped past by most listeners might not be the most effective use of my time. But then again, maybe some people are only listening to this part of the show because they love the personality it brings to the podcast, right? And is it not worth arguing that this very meandering, self-indulgent ramble is the very sketch I've said I wouldn't do? Have I spent an embarrassingly long amount of time even crafting this? Jamie looks up at clock. Hmm, five hours. Yes, I've spent five hours writing the words I'm currently saying. All right, hit one of those quick sound effects, huh? This is a sound effect on the So I'm super excited about today's guest, Jensen Karp. Here's a quick rundown of some of the projects he has going on right now. He has a memoir coming out next month called Kanye West Owes Me $300, which you can pre-order on Amazon if you're interested. More info in the podcast. Jensen has two art galleries called Gallery 1988 here in LA. Um, he has several podcasts and he does live shows at UCB, Meltdown, and now he has one here at the Lab at the Improv and oh so much more. So Jensen and I recently met and we bonded over our shared history of growing up Jewish in the San Fernando Valley in the 1990s and being obsessed with hip-hop culture. Now, while I was an underground hip-hop radio DJ at UC Santa Barbara and helping run an indie hip-hop label, he was rising to stardom on the merits of his rap battle skills on LA radio and landing six-figure record deals. Needless to say, his path to comedy was an unorthodox one, and he's carved out a career for himself as a modern-day renaissance man, constantly juggling projects that he's passionate about. On this episode, we talk about his windy path to success, but also dig into how he does all the things he does on a daily basis to maintain and thrive on all these projects. As a person who's also juggling projects to varying degrees of success, I'm always interested in learning more about how others do it seemingly effortlessly. And as artists and comedians are now having to take on more hats than ever to succeed, I think there's going to be a lot of really valuable info for everyone in this episode. So listen to it. Now. Thanks. Okay. Jensen, are you ready? I'm ready. Great. Okay, let me just recalibrate. <laughs> yeah, you wear many hats. I'm sure podcasting is the least, like, I feel like you have to calm down for it. Kind of. There's so many things, but I get so much joy out of it. Yeah. I love these conversations. All right, all right. Talking to creative people is my favorite thing. All right, all right. And you're one of those. And look at that organic intro <laughs> to this episode of Gatekeeper. People will think we scripted that. Not at all. That's <laughs> called improv. Really good improv. Wait, and yes. At the improv. Yeah. Yes, we yes ended. And I wanted you to be on this podcast because you're you're a man that wears many hats. Yes. And this show is about gatekeepers. Sure. Basically the art of saying yes and no. And you're in the position of saying yes and no. 
Um, and you're on the other side of that as well, where you're pitching projects and being told yes and no. That's right. Every day. Yes, both. So that's the... Both are grueling. They are both. So I'll talk about that. <laughs> we talk about the good parts of it? Yeah, well, we, we'll take a step back. Um, okay. And I know you've, you've talked about this so much, but mm. let's get us to your career. And we've also, I should say, uh, connected. We're both from the Valley. Yeah, so, and 818. We're both hip-hop till the day we die. Yeah, hip-hop 818 kids. There's only like 4,000 of us tops. I know. Total. Tops. Yeah. And we know them all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and many of them are listeners of this podcast. I hope so. So for everyone else... What's what's the story? Uh, well, I grew up in Woodland Hills, California, which uh, is adjacent to the city of Calabasas, which has now become synonymous with the Kardashians and where like rich people go to live. And it was always like this affluent neighborhood, but I grew up next to it. My father was a car salesman. My mother uh, worked in advertising, uh, local advertising, like the penny saver and such. So I didn't necessarily grow up with the kind of money Calabasas had. Uh, and that neighborhood was just influenced by rock only. Like it was, the, it was the high school that would eventually bring you Incubus and Lincoln Park <laughs> and uh, Hoobastank and a bunch of bands came out of my area and uh, no one was in hip hop. It was, you know, between elementary school and middle school, uh, I, I was looked at like an alien. So I, I just dug deeper. I would, I would literally study it like it was uh, like the way like, like baseball fans look at stats, mm -hmm. like every album that came out, I would buy it every single 12 inch, every single, I, I turntables for my, you know, my sixth grade graduation. I saved some money. Oh, my course. dad paid for some. I mean, it was like a dream for me to do anything in hip hop. Do you remember the first hip hop track you heard or what, what brought you in? Was there a group or a it's third base? Okay. Yeah. My cousin had played me UTFO and Houdini and, um, the Adventures of Slick Rick and a bunch of records. Uh, and he had played me third base cactus album. Uh, and that was the first time that it spoke to me directly. It was these white guys. And I, I knew that Lee mm -hmm. search was sometimes Jewish. Uh, and, and they had street cred. Yeah. Big time. And they rapped and they, they rapped about things that other rappers were talking about, but didn't, but didn't go over the line with things they didn't know. And that was what spoke to me so much is that I, I always knew I was an outsider looking in, but hearing third base, be able to turn it into their own thing. I was like, Oh, I can do that. And that was sort of the, the first record that made me think that. And then you got turntables for sixth grade graduation. I did going into sixth grade. Yeah. And did he use I got those? one technique and one Gemini? Oh, how do you I make that? Work? I don't know. I don't know why my dad did that. I, we, we, cause we didn't have the money for two techniques. So back then we would have been like, don't do this. We would have been like, hold on, just get one table and then let's save for the technique. But I was stuck with a belt driven and a technique and it was like a nightmare. That's still ahead of your time though. Oh, I, mean, I was sixth grade, like, way ahead of my, no, I was like a, a, I was like a 35 year old hip hop fan stuck in a 12 year old's <laughs> body my whole life. So I, I, I just didn't understand why other people weren't gravitating towards it. And I knew it was only a matter of time before everyone in my school was singing along to Nelly. I knew it. I just knew it too early. Did you get the turntables? Cause you wanted to start DJing parties and yeah. yeah. Well, cause it would, it uh, many reasons. One is I knew it was like a core element of hip hop. So even though I couldn't really do graffiti, it was still something I grabbed. Anything that was in my culture, I was just interested in. For those that are listeners that aren't familiar, break down those, those core elements of hip hop. I, hope I remember it. So it's DJing, graffiti, M, uh, MCing, and, uh, and breakdancing. And as one of my rapper friends, Eric would say racism or, yeah. uh, <laughs> or misogyny. Misogyny. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted any of those. Yeah. That was really what I was going towards. And I, I, I did break dancing lessons when I was like in second or third grade. That wasn't, a, I, I was into hip hop dancing, but that wasn't what I wanted to do, but I was just down for all of it, any of, any of it. And so, um, I started rapping myself around sixth or seventh grade in my school, like definitely looked down on it. I was bullied for it. Um, but I just stuck with it and, and loved it. And so I had like a small brush with, um, like rap fan, like fame. Uh, when I was like in seventh grade, we were managed by Ice-T's Rhyme Syndicate mm. and uh, it didn't work out at all, but it, it gave me 
sort of the understanding of what I, where my place was in hip hop. In seventh grade, you were up by, by syndicate. I was, yeah, I was managed by rhyme syndicate, Donald D specifically. Well, that's a, the first time you're dealing with the gatekeeper. Yeah. Like what, uh, how does that happen? Uh, well, I was at a bar mitzvah. Sure. Uh, <laughs> which is how every good Woodland Hills Calabasas story starts. And I was talking in, Temple Judea. Oh yeah, please. You're killing it now. Temple Aliyah. Sure. Uh, and so please, we, I've, I've already done one very Jewish podcast in this room and we honestly, it was like we were wearing yarmulkes the whole <laughs> podcast. Uh, and so, yeah, I, uh, I was at a bar mitzvah mimicking the words to a rap song, the DJ company, one of the DJs saw me and was like, if I give you a microphone, will you do it? And I was like, yes, because that's a dumb thing to do when you're a kid and with pimples. And so I grabbed it and, and killed it. It was one of the first times I ever really rapped into a microphone, uh, other than like a talent show here or there. And, uh, the guy was like, what can we do? Like, what, what can I do? And I was like, well, those are my parents, you know, go talk to them. And he quickly was like, well, I want to manage them. And he had some connections in West coast hip hop. Why was he at the bar mitzvah? He was a dancer. Ah. He was a, a paid dancer, uh, by the company and a DJ. And he was just like, I can mold this. He was kind of like Jermaine Dupree before, you know, like about, I guess Dallas Austin around the same time. Cause Chris Cross had just come out. And so he was like, I can do it with, with him. And I was like, well, I have another kid in my group, which I kind of did this black, the only black kid in my whole middle school, Ricky. Um, him and I had talked about starting a rap group. And so I was like, we have one. I didn't really have one. Sure. And so he was like, great, we'll bring in Ricky. And he eventually was like the first person to ever tell me like, Ricky, will give you the street cred you need. Yeah, like yeah. I had no idea what that was. And so I ended up writing my own stuff and, and we did some shows and rhyme syndicate. I opened for them at one of them and Donald D walked up to me and I was a fan already from the stuff he had done with ice T and his own album, let the horns blow. And, uh, he was like, I want to manage you guys. And that was it. And then we, we worked with them for a few months. And then, and then, uh, it's, it, it, I talk about it a lot in the book, but basically he had us do a photo shoot and it was already feeling a little weird. It was like, my mom would drive me to a gangster rapper's house every weekend. And it was just like getting weirder and weirder mm -hmm. over time. And he was like, I have a photo shoot idea. I want you guys to come down here on a weekend. And so I went down there and it was two weeks after the LA riots and he had me and Ricky dress up in cross colors and stand in front of rubble and burnt down buildings and robbed liquor stores with bats and stuff. And it was like, I, even at that age, I was like, this is, this feels terrible. Yeah. And we were getting terrible looks and Donald would be like, oh, you're fine. You have a hood pass from me. Um, and it didn't feel that way at all. And I felt like, I felt even being an old man for my age again, I was like, this just doesn't feel even nice. a hood pass has strings attached. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, this doesn't, and also just felt bad for me. It was never what I wanted to do. I kind of, I just wanted to rap. Yeah. And so he was sort of, creating this gimmick that I wasn't. Uh, and so we slowly lost touch after that. So then you're, you go through high school mm -hmm. and I kind of hide my hip hop love, at least at Calabasas. I would have to go to like Canoga park high or, or El Camino or different schools around there just to find rap battles. And battles is really what I was into. I was just sort of going every weekend to parties and just, you know, as many people as I could battle in one shot. And, and, and I'm like, there's a gimmick with me is that I look so much like I look like JJ Abrams mm -hmm. and I look like that even as like a kid. So like, I'm like the, like the Woody Harrelson, like the white man can't jump thing, which is like, he can't beat me. And then I walk up and, and I, I lived up to it. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't dress like a rap guy. Uh, I look like a nerd. And so when I, when I go up and, and just murder, it became, I even sounded better because they didn't expect it from me. And so I was winning all the time. And, uh, I go off to college, which becomes a more accepting space for hip hop within white kids, at least, and uh, go to USC. And I rap at parties and it's starting to become a thing to just get girls really more than anything. And I entered a radio contest in L.A. here called The Roll Call, which is something I had done even when I was a kid. And it's just a radio contest where you battle three or four people a day. That's it. And, you just, and then they pick a winner based on the calls. And I won the first day and I was you know, 19 years old, just turned 19. 
I won the second day, won the third day. And I was like, oh man, I'm, I made up a fake name. I, they asked me what my name is. I said, Hot Carl. It's the first thing that came to mind. I didn't want to say Jensen. And so here I am, you know, I'm an intern on the Flintstones sequel. That's just what I'm doing in college. It's a break. Yeah. And I'm driving and uh, they start talking about everyone's calling about the same thing. Uh, we can't wait to have them on either. And I was like, oh my God, who's coming in? And they're like, Hot Carl's going to be on at five. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And it started to hit me like, this is what I've always wanted, you know, like growing up, like when I would, when I would try to be on the roll call, like this was the dream that they would like hype me up in the middle of the day. And so 43 days later, I retired on my own from the roll call. And it was like a big LA phenomenon on the radio. It was before Sirius radio, before the iPod. Mm -hmm. It was all these things that sort of like aligned for me to have a nice time on the radio. And when I, I retired myself, I walked off and was offered a million dollar record deal by Jimmy Iovine and, and Interscope Records. That's incredible. Just based off the radio. Yeah. And I had a song or two that I did during those 43 days that helped me get the deal. Um, but yeah, it was based off this buzz and no one, you can't get that kind of time on the radio back then. You no. Know? Well, what's really interesting and cool about these first two huge opportunities for you are they came just by putting yourself out there yeah. with not actively seeking it. No. Also looking like I do. Yeah. And that the right, time, you know, right place, right time. Of yeah. Course. Because they don't know what I look like on the phone. So they would take bets. Is he white? Is he black? And people would call and be like, he's clearly white. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like Buster Poindexter. Why not Asian? Yeah, I guess. And so, uh, and so basically when I walked in the Baker boys who were the, the DJs of at the course. time, like a tradition, you know, they're a tradition in LA and, uh, they were like, Oh my God, he looks like you won't believe what he looks like. <laughs> you know, I came in with like a Hawaiian shirt on and I really lived up that gimmick. And so, you know, that helped and, 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 and Eminem hadn't yet hit really, but it was buzzing and hi, my name is, was dropped, you know, and so it was just about to hit. And so it was a perfect time for a guy looking like me with funny lyrics, with a nasally voice, uh, to hit, to, to hit. And I did. So then you're offered a million dollars. Yeah. A couple things were before that Mac 10 came to my house. My mom, this is such a weird story. And this is again, probably my favorite part of the book, but my mom, um, has a mailbox in Woodland Hills, like a post office box. And my mom, when I was on the roll call during those 43 days, was basically my publicist. Like, I, I have a publicist now who doesn't do as much work as my mother did. What, and so when you tell your, tell your mom and your dad, like, uh, hey, so I'm, I'm like, I'm day 13 yeah. of this thing. What was their reaction? Well, they're thrilled. I mean, they were always they so were supportive. supportive yeah. yeah, extremely supportive. Uh, both of them. You know, my father was from Brooklyn, so he like, he loved that these guys were from New York that I was listening to kind of. And then my mother was a, was a Motown enthusiast and a, and a background singer mm -hmm. for doo-wop back in the day. And so she was stoked on the samples and stoked that there was like a new music that I was into. So, and, I mean, that's very enterprising that you would even <laughs> consult your mom about a PR plan. Well, no, I mean, I didn't consult her at all. She just did it. I love that. No, she, I, please, I would tell her to stop. I was, I was trying to not tell people I was hot girl in case I messed up. You know, I didn't want it to really follow me in college. And also kids in high school were basically telling me not to rap anyway. So I didn't want them to have any sort of gratification if I lost. Mm. And so I, uh, my mom goes to this mailbox and talks to this woman and brings up the rap, obviously, because that's what she was doing. And the woman's like, my son's a rapper. Who is he? Oh, Mac 10. She's, I'll tell my son about it tonight. I'll tell him to listen to the radio. So I win, I get out of the studio at like seven, seven thirty, and I look down at my phone and my mom calls right before texting. And she goes, Mac 10's calling you, Mac 10's calling you. And she just hangs up because I don't even know if I have a call waiting. And I pick up the phone, it's Mac 10. And he goes, where are you going to be in an hour? And I go, I'll be at my parents. And she goes, uh, give me the address. I go, okay. So I give him the address. And he showed up at my parents' house with $50,000 cash in a, in, a, in a briefcase. And he was like, if you sign today, I'll give you this. And that's not the end of it, but I'll give you this much. And this is your signing bonus and we'll deal with the rest later. And I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. This is only like, you know, 15, 20 days in. 
And I was like, you know, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I was like, this is all just sort of, cause I'm doing college at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I was like, dude, I'm so tired and I'm just so beat. I was like, let's put a pin in this. I was like, cause this is a hobby for me. Did you say, let's put a pin in this? Probably. It was the weirdest meeting. <laughs> My mom was like, do I make them sandwiches? I was like, mom, go in the other room. And it was just like this weird moment where I was like, well, I'm always going to remember this. And, uh, he's been, uh, you know, I don't I haven't talked to him in a couple of years, but he was a friend, even though I said no to that deal, he was a friend for years and, and really. Well, how him. much pressure? I mean, when did he wanted to walk out of there with a deal? Yeah. Uh, and that's, he was light though. And, and, and he's done interviews about it since. And in those he's, he's like, I kind of knew he wasn't going to take it. He's like, cause I knew he was smart and I figured, you know, this would hold him down a little too much, but, um, I mean, he was just a good dude. I would do anything for $50,000 right now. (laughs) From a briefcase from Mac 10. It's (laughs) terrifying. He showed up in a car that was like $200,000. He walked out smoking a cigar. It was all like this weird Suge Knight vibe. And even though he ended up being such a polite, great man, it was still like so intimidating for a 19 year old in his parents' house. We were like feet away from where I had a Sesame Street chair Mm -hmm. all my whole life. Uh, That'd be funny if I had a Sesame Street chair until I was 19. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it was like, it was just something that felt odd and strange and I knew not to take it. I knew enough. Well, that's, I mean, thematically for this podcast to this point, I mean, and that's the first example of, you know, saying no is, you know, saying yes to yourself. And, but especially when you're young and whether you're a young comic or musician, like it takes a lot of wherewithal and and patience. So that's yeah, good on you. Yeah. You definitely (laughs) need to know what, because you take any, like a lot of people, I dated this girl. I don't know, like a year ago. And she, I remember in a car, she was like, she's an, she acts. And she was like, uh, I kind of take every job. You got to kind of take every job. And I was like, no, you don't. You don't though. Cause like some of those jobs don't pay what you want them to pay. You know what I mean? Like there's certain elements that you just don't take every job. Like I get that theory, like doing shows and doing, they, they do help, but like be passionate about them or get paid decently. Yeah. You know, don't, don't, don't just do it. Cause you need to have something on your plate. Mm-hmm. And I think that was how I felt about Mac, which is like, well, something great is brewing on the radio. This is the first time anyone's brought money into my equation at all. I can always go back to it. Yeah. And that was my theory. And so I, I again, if the first time, I mean, if there's interest at that level, briefcase level, Mac 10 briefcase level, then yeah, yeah there's going to be I more. Had, and I had no time to ask if anyone was calling the station. I, nothing, none of that came up and I found out later they were. And so that was kind of, you know, it was just like, it was too early for him to do that. And I think he knew. Well, and then what, like 30 days later, you're even offered a million. Yeah. And, and, and a couple of deals. Yeah. The firm. And I met with a bunch of people at the time and, and that it was really, it went quick. I mean, I signed like a couple of weeks later. So you signed this deal. Yeah. Jimmy Ivey, I invited to his house. We have a salmon dinner. Sure. He gives me a million dollar it's record. It's a power deal. dinner. Yeah. It's like, it ends up being like 800,000. Then there's a stipend monthly, you know, it all works out. And I, I didn't even have a lawyer. So the next day I had to get a lawyer, you know, it was like, it was going that fast. And I was still in college and yeah. I told, I was a junior. And so I told Jimmy, I was like, I want to graduate. He's like, you'll graduate. And I did. And he was just like, you'll record in New York, you'll record in LA. We'll get you this. We'll get you on TRL. We'll get you. It was just like promise, 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 promise. And so when Jimmy Iovine tells you, I have you too. I have no doubt. I have Dr. Dre. I have Eminem. I have Jurassic Five. I have, you know, Bloodhound Gang, which is a shit group that was selling 5 million <laughs> albums. Like I was like, okay, okay. No one can beat this. No one could beat that. You, you, you're telling me all the right stuff. And so I signed the deal basically that night on a handshake and then the real deal a week later. So now your dreams are coming true. Yeah. I'm a professional rapper. You're a professional rapper. That's what I do for a living. And, um, you know, signing with the, the, the best place you could possibly be. Yeah. The Yankees. Yeah. Yeah. They're basically the New York Yankees of music. And, and he was, you know, he's went on to sell the headphones company and to Apple and all these things. He's just, he's kind of unparalleled. I guess you can compare him to Quincy or, or, uh, I don't know, I guess Clive Davis, but I think he really kind of excels both of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess he, Quincy made better music, but Jimmy made a better scene. I mean, he created music in a different way. 
Yeah, and you were on a roster with um, amazing contemporaries. Yeah, and my concern and was the like the Bloodhound Gang. Yeah, I know. Well, there's more than that. Stained was also there, and Puddle of Mud was also there. So a lot of groups that I could shit on. Uh, but he, you know, my concern was like, well, Eminem's on this label, and that seems weird that you'd have both of us. I mean, I see the difference, but I could see how some people don't. And he was like, oh, there's nothing to worry about. Okay, but trouble is looming. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So what happens now? Record the album, uh, L.A., New York. Uh, record with Fabulous, Redman, DJ Quick. Uh, you know, the money just flowed. It was anyone I wanted to perform with, anyone I wanted to record with. It was like nuts. And so we record this album, spend all this money on it. And I mean, there's stories along the way that just are bonkers. And that's why the book is so like important to me is like, no one can tell the story about writing a song with Cisco in his Tarzana mansion, or no one can talk about, you know, meeting uh, Maya and uh, just weird stuff that happened to me in red man and things that no one else with my point of view have ever mm -hmm. experienced. And like, I went through it as an observer because as much as I had all of my heart and passion in this, I was still an outsider and I was still a journalist at heart. I was a journalism filmic writing major at USC. So it was like, I was living it and still sort of paying attention. And so these little stories that happen like they're so insane. Like they're, they're like, I can't even like, I can't believe them as I wrote them. Like, man, I don't tell them. I don't, don't talk about them. So, so this book is coming out. I think this episode will drop next week. So, great. so June 7th and you can pre-order it. Yeah. It's called Kanye West owes me $300 uh, and other true stories from a white rapper who almost made it big. And it, I, I did record with Kanye very early in his career. We became very close friends and he does owe me $300, which is just a chapter in the book. But uh, I, I, I was an early stop for a very fast train with Kanye and uh, uh, very weird stories with him as well. And so, yeah, we record this record and uh, I'm getting ready to put it out. And I was told sort of anonymously by an employee at Interscope that everything would change the next Monday. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, like every my life was on, on this, you know speed racer. My whole life had changed clubs. Mm -hmm. I was getting into nightclubs. I was getting into, and this guy called me and was just anonymously like, yo, it's no, they're not putting out this record. And I was like, what is going on? And he's like, there's tension from within the label. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, I had no idea what that meant. And so it kind of over time has come out as that, not Marshall himself, not Eminem himself, but that there was tension within the label to have something come out while Eminem had so much money on the table and not that yeah, I would have taken anything away from him or not that I was better than him, but why do it? Mm -hmm. He's your cash cow. Why even try to upset the man? He was, he was using in lyrics, like there's other fish in the sea, but nobody as good as me kind of shit. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're, you're going to put someone out who is one of those fish in the seas talking right. about. And so I think like now as a 36 year old man, I see the business aspect to it, but at 20 years old, 21, I'm crushed. It's, it's defying all. I couldn't even know what I was doing. So, uh, they don't put out the record. And they own it and there's nothing you can do. Right. Since then, they've, the peop, some people have bootlegged it onto iTunes and stuff, but it's, it's, uh, it'll never be released. No, not, not in tandem with a book. No, no, no. It's aged very well, which is great news for me. Uh, it's done at the time. What I was made fun of for is that I sounded like a white guy and that I talked about suburban things. I talked about pop culture, but now it would be very hard to find a rapper who doesn't do some of those right. things. So like now people listen to it and they're like not taken back by it. But at the time, you know, before G easy and hoodie Allen and, and, uh, and little Dicky. I mean, these names that now are in my wheelhouse, it's like, I was just really early. Yeah. And so now people listen to it and go, wow, well, I don't see a problem. You don't even sound like him. I was like, right. shut up. I like, that's all I faced. So. No. And coming from that world at that time where, you know, we've connect on that and in, in my involvement in the hip hop and all that, like, yeah. um, that was so novel. And, um, it was a voice that hadn't, you hadn't heard much of zero yeah. and you'd go to hip hop shows. Like I went to a lot of Jurassic five shows. I really liked them around that time. And I, I liked a couple groups, ugly duckling and 
a couple of groups at that time that I was really into. And I'd go and the audience was 95% white. And mm-hmm. I was, I was a new change that had just happened that year that you would go to, you know, Wu-Tang kids weren't scared to go to the shows anymore. So it started to change. Mm-hmm. People were like, Oh, this isn't a huge monster that I, my parents told me it would be, you know, people were starting to learn like, Oh, this is overhyped fear. Yeah. And so we started going to hip hop shows and I was there the whole time, but I started to notice 80, 90% of them were in the audience. I easily could have changed my voice. I easily could have talked about guns. I easily could have talked about jewelry. I'm a good rapper. I could do any of those things, mm-hmm. but what I want to do is be myself and do something new in hip hop. And, uh, no one was ready. And, awesome. and, and, but, but I thought maybe, you know, cause these kids are in the audience, they'd want to see themselves up there or have some of their own voice heard. And at the time the answer was no. Now it is, I mean, clearly yes. And just to make a quick parallel, because you know, a big, uh, section of the listenership of the show is, is comedy people. And we'll get to that because you cross over perfectly in, into the comedy world. But, um, that idea of, I mean, to this day, it's like, it's like what, who's making it. It's, it's the new voices and people that have something different to say. And yeah. it's no different for stand up comedy than it is in music or anything else. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, hip hop is weird because there was a point of view that was pretty standard. You had to have a certain point of view to get in. And now in music, it's like, you're pretty much celebrated for any voice you have, as long as you have great skills and are putting out good songs. Mm -hmm. That was not the case when I was in hip hop In hip hop. You had, then you had to sort of fit a formula, which I could have changed to at any time. Uh, but I wasn't really willing to. Yeah. I would think it's interesting because I'm just getting nostalgic now, but thinking back to the late nineties and I'm going to UC Santa Barbara and I'm from LA, but especially in LA, they going over the hill and you mentioned even in the Valley, you know, that these scenes are. Yeah. Canoga Park was strong. I loved it there. Yeah. Um, but going over the hill and then going to Melrose and going yeah, to the, the record shops. Yeah, and, and yeah. oh man, there were some DMC records and yeah. things that I was loving. And that's how I learned about anything. My mom found a picture of us on, on a Mexican vacation. The only time we ever went out, of, <laughs> anytime we ever went on vacation, my mom found a photo recently. We went to like Cabo or something and I'm wearing an AWR Gat shirt. <laughs> I was like, fuck yeah, man. I'm like 12. It's so great. What was I doing? It was because I was going down to Melrose and picking up those shirts and, you know, gypsies and thieves and that shit that oh, I was trying to buy. And like, that was that was my lifeline. That was what I was, you know, my Phillies blunt shirt, you know, oh, God, I remember 15. It all, yeah. yeah. It's like those, those things were my, that was my salvage. That was, that was what I was fighting to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to find your scene yeah. and, and find where and you there was in. no one with me. It was me and a bunch of kids from city schools that I'd have to become friends with. Well, I wonder how many times we crossed paths. Yeah. Many shows I'm sure. So then let's, so the, the deal doesn't go through. Yeah. And you're crushed. Crushed. And now at a, pick up the pieces and figure out what's next. Yeah. And that was harder than, you know, that obviously is hard. That's difficult. Uh, and so I, I went through a lot of trouble. I got back into rap for a second. I tried to find a real job and someone offered me some money to go back in. And I was like, okay, I didn't really have any other options. So I ended up putting out a record through an independent label. Um, it's called headless heroes, but it was actually BBE, which was putting out great records at the time. Uh, they put out the Dilla stuff and mm-hmm. they put out, um, that will I am beats record, which is really good. And so, um, and Pete rock stuff too. And so I was stoked to get money more than anything, sure. but I, my body was telling me not to do it. My body was like, don't do this. Don't do this. You don't want to do this. And I, and I really had no option. So I ended up putting out a record and touring and, and it really just ended badly. It didn't for me, not so much for the project. I don't know who cares. It gave me like $5,000. But at the time I was just like hurt and I was hurting and I, my body was telling me to do something else. And I was trained in writing and I was trained in comedy and that was what I wanted to do. And, uh, I couldn't do that. And so I've learned since, you know, growing up, that my body does not allow me to do things I don't want to do. At least dive head first. That's and, super yeah. power. It's, and that's, and I know that now, but at the time I didn't know that. And so, uh, I faced a lot of like trouble around that time. And, uh, it's, you know, it's good for the story, the rock bottom. Yeah. A big rock bottom. But coming out of that was sort of what I needed. I needed that. 
like being told your record's not coming out is a lot different than your body breaking down. Mm -hmm. And that's what it did. And so I knew I had to do something different and I just wiped myself off and fucking stood up and did something else. And I opened an art gallery. So that was the next big thing. It was the that was it. So yeah. gallery 1988. Yeah. I took some of the publishing money that I got, cause I also got a publishing deal and I took some of that money and I opened it with a, a friend, Katie from USC. We had this idea to do uh, affordable artwork with a pop culture theme, mm-hmm. which had never been done before. And I sort of said, well, if hot Carl didn't work, I have another idea with Katie. We could try that. And we did. And then two years later, I didn't get that Jimmy Ivy meeting. Instead it worked. Yeah. So now you have this gallery. So just talk about that for me. I mean, that's, you know, as far as curating and, and being a gatekeeper of, yeah. of a space, like what is the the ethos behind how that place operates? Yeah. I mean, we, we focus on pop culture art. You know, we had started uh, just trying to find 20 to 30 year old artists on the internet and small one night shows that, that weren't being taken serious in galleries. And so we started to show them and it was, uh, you know, I, I knew I wanted to post, you know, I wanted to put Mario Kart art on my wall. Mm-hmm. I just figured we had to find some people who did. And I had friends like DJ AM and friends like Kanye even who were spending $300, $400 on sneakers, but then you'd go to their house and they had garbage mm-hmm. or no posters because they couldn't find anything. And so I was like, well, let's bridge that gap. You know, and Katie was down. She was, you know, she had an art history major. So she knew her shit on a, on a level I didn't know. And so we just stayed with it. And, you know, for two years, we didn't have people come in a lot and Eventually there were lines around the block and and now we've been open 13 years. That's incredible. Yeah. On Melrose. I mean, you know, we're on the street right now. It's like the, the life span of Melrose is, is eight months or something. Yeah. We've been there 13 years and we have two locations on the street, which is nuts. That is absolutely nuts. And so I'm sure people are interested. I'm interested. What, um, you know, how does the gallery in 13 years evolve and what, I mean, what have you learned along the way? I mean, uh, nowadays because I have another career in comedy, um, I, depend on, on gallery managers. So I have uh, Amber who runs our, our large space, our sort of flagship store. And she basically keeps everything together. And then we just hired a new girl, Lauren at our small space. And both of them are the keys to our success at this point. Katie just had a child. I am having a child with this book. Uh, so we, you know, we're in and out and, and these people run it and we know we are a machine. If mm-hmm. someone is going to make us tons of money, but they can't fit in the machine, we don't show them, which is, a hindrance and a, a, a real help for us. You know, there's been people over the past few years that I know are going to become huge stars, but they don't personality fit. They don't fit in the thing we need the art by a certain time. So we could post it so we could promote it so we could, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I'm not, I, we can't change at this point. It's too deep. What a personality wise, what is um, your threshold? We need people to play ball. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you, if you don't understand that we're looking at it from an artistic point of view, we've been doing this so long. Like we will not make someone do something they don't want to do, but we know what will sell. We know what will help you in your career moving forward. Some of our biggest artists like Greg, Greg Crayola Simpkins and some of these names that have went on to spell, you know, sell $50,000 paintings. They respect our plan. And now Greg, you know, shows at more blue chip galleries. He doesn't really show with us anymore and we're stoked for him, Mm -hmm. but we are an, er we're an early stop for these people. So we love developing artists. And if you're not willing to at least listen to our advice, that's okay. I'm not mad at you, but that's just not right for our machine right now. That's really interesting. I mean, I've never even thought about that. Um, not in comedy, no art gallery. Well, in comedy, certainly. I mean, I'm sure you've run into people who are very funny, but they don't fit the mold here at this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, at, at the improv. You know, and that's what's, um, you know, this job is, is uh, you know, you're not a fit. Everyone's not a fit. No. But it is interesting to me to think of that in the art world that, you know, uh, you know, creative visual artists. You know, yeah. Well, there's a guy named Josh Keys, who's pretty much my favorite artist ever. And he's done 
a lot of things with us before I own a painting of his, like he, he drops in, he did something for our star Wars show. He does. Cause we end up working with, with brands and stuff. So like we've worked with star Wars and breaking bad and lost. We work directly with the studio to create something with them mm-hmm. art show wise or product wise. And Josh has stopped by many times and done many shows with us, but he could never do a solo with us. It's not, not our world. You know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I would love for Josh keys to email me one day and go, I think we could do a solo and we'd make it work. Mm-hmm. But like when he succeeded other places, I go, yeah, for fucking sure. Yeah. He's going to blow up for sure. He's incredible. You know? And so like that, that's what I see more, which is like, yeah, he's for sure going to blow up just somewhere else. Cause it doesn't fit us, mm-hmm. but that's, I, I can't imagine a comedy. It would, I would assume it's similar. Right. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's people that are, are a fit for this club and this is just through my lens, yeah. um, you know, versus other clubs that like different things. We all like different things. Yeah. And the, I mean, not to get too much into this, but I mean, for this club and the listeners podcast know like there's so many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. It's not just my lens. I wish it was just my lens, yeah. but you know, there's 15 other people and things got it in all the politics. Yeah. And it's between Katie and I. And so we, we, that's and much, sometimes she'll be like, I'm not showing this person again. And then I'll have a minute to defend it. And if it doesn't work, she like, we ain't showing them again. Well, that's the beauty of a good partnership. Yeah. And my, my question is when did these parameters, uh, evolve or really from day one, you kind of knew what you wanted. I think it's just interesting at the, you know, the birth and conceptualization. No, we didn't know for sure. I mean, we knew we wanted pop culture. We knew those things, but over time we realized themed group shows. We realized these things like very detailed specifics, you know, like when they turn in their work, what we need them to do to turn their work, when we need the information on each piece, like those small things mm-hmm. sound really minimal, but the details are what have broken these artists before. It's like that willingness to follow a system that has proven itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is sort of where we're at, you know, like we, we, We've designed now 20 DVD Blu-ray covers for Sony. We've done, I mean, we've done, uh, we, we, we ran a marketing campaign for the Oscars one year. You know, I worked on the Avengers. I done, I've done so much in a marketing capacity beyond just the gallery that if I were an artist, I'd be like, well, at least I'll try it. Maybe it's not for me, but I'll mm-hmm. try it. You know, and like, if it's good for them, it's a, if it's a system they want, then, then it works really well. And would you have ever in a thousand years predicted that any of those things would happen when you open that gallery? No. 13 years? No. And no, that's- three years. You know, another theme that I really like, like to illustrate and, and it's like, you know, inspiring artists, like you just have to dive in yeah. every time. Yeah. Three years was our sort of our max. And I knew cause a rap, I knew I wasn't going to rap again, but I knew I could get in some rooms. I knew I could write. And so I was like, well, I'll just I'll do this for a couple of years and really get back into my craft and write some specs and get back in, in some rooms. So the gallery is going. Yeah. Three years. in. Yeah. And now comedy and writing. So yeah. how are these manifesting in your life? So, uh, I had always been writing. That was always my thing. Like in, in, during hot Carl, one of the deals with, uh, at the time CAA or I don't know who, that's how bad my memory is. I was signed to an agent mm-hmm. for, for booking and touring, but they didn't use me. Obviously I didn't release an album, but I, I had a bunch of people fighting to have me. So I agreed, um, to the one that I was like, I want a script agent, which is the worst idea ever because the script agent's being forced on you. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. But anyway, they gave it to me. And so I turned in a script uh, at the time called Seeds, which uh, I was really happy with. And it was a story which you now know is a different movie because someone else had the idea as well. But it was about a man who donates sperm in college and then has 200 people show up Mm -hmm. at his door over time. And they made that with, um, uh, they made it with Vince Vaughn. And so uh, um, uh, Amanda Demi got it in her hands and she championed it and got it to Jimmy Fallon and got it to a bunch of people. And it got covered, it got coverage and it got great coverage great coverage. I've worked in coverage since I've never seen coverage end with this movie should be made. And that's what my coverage ended with. And so it got me in meetings. It got me to Ari Emanuel, it got me to a couple of people. Nothing came of it really. Um, but it got me the confidence I needed. And mm-hmm. so 
I had a friend who was an agent and I had my own agent that didn't care about me. And I said, send me papers, tell me who's hiring. And so I got that kind of like list, you know, Mm -hmm. and one of them was WWE. And I was like, I could do that. And so I applied to write Monday Night Raw for WWE right when the gallery started to have its own legs. And I said, well, I can go away for a little. And I wrote in my first real room. I wrote jokes for people before that, but my first real room was, was pro wrestling. That's amazing. Yeah. And so you grew up loving wrestling. I did. I didn't get into it later when I got hired. I kind of had to catch up, but, but uh, I loved it as a kid. And I was like, well, this is, I can write this. And also I thought I brought like a, an aesthetic, a comedy aesthetic they didn't have. And so I wrote funny shit and, and I was like, they could use this. And they, and they did for a while. I was so there was seven months. A, a writer's room. Yeah. And so just, just like everyone else. Yeah yeah. 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 And you were the, the comedy. I was pretty much the comedy guy. Yeah. yeah. At the time, Patrice O'Neill had stopped by. He had been there for a while. Uh, I think he only lasted a couple of months, but there were a handful of people that I know now in passing even um, that are comedy guys and we just aren't there at the same time. Yeah. I think they just rotate us out. So you, you chalked that up as a great experience. No, it was a terrible experience. Oh, well, shit. Uh, it was not a great room. <coughs> it was a great experience in the way that a lot of people think it would be a bad experience. I loved Vince McMahon. I love Stephanie McMahon. I worked with them every single day. I flew on planes with them alone every day. Like it was really cool in that way. The things you think I won't like. But we had a head writer who just was crabby. Everybody's crabby because you're too, you're traveling three, four days a week. Um, you're unhappy. You don't really have a girlfriend because you don't have the time. Things that really fuck with you. You know, creatively, you're writing right before we go live because even though we had a plan for a week, it changed. You know, this the shit that happens. Mm-hmm. But when you do that here in L.A., you go home and you sleep and you meet a girl and you try to start a family there. It's like nothing. You know, you, right. you, you get shit on it and then you go home to your, you know, I was living in a hotel for seven months. So... Yeah you know, it just wasn't and traveling and it wasn't for me. And that was your first, you know, a professional writing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got paid for jokes here and there, but, but, uh, yeah, that was my first real job. And so what does that lead to? Um, well, I come home and, and really delve back into the gallery a bit, but at the time I wanted to start, you know, going back into classes and going back into improv and going back into writing jokes. And so that was sort of my plan. I didn't really have a goal but I knew my plan was to hone in better. And then between Twitter and a blog and all these things that started to happen online, uh, it gave me an outlet to write jokes a lot. And so that gave me sort of the confidence and, mm-hmm. and it gave me the attention um, that I sort of needed. And from there, I've written on, on a bunch of stuff. And so what is your strategy as far as, you know, landing gigs? Other than it's seemingly at this point, you, you've done so much that you're kind of just in the ether and all these places that, you know, I'm rejecting jobs, which is like yeah. so fucking nuts to me. Like I can't, I even can't get over it. Like it's weird to me that I'm, I'm I like, cause I'm so used to like trying to work. You know what I mean? Like I'm so used to like having the gallery and people being like, well, Jensen's funny. Let's try. But now it's like, I'm doing, I'm rejecting more. I mean, these aren't great, whatever. I think they're great jobs. <laughs> but shows are very fun and they take three weeks tops and they pay decently and I get in and out and they've been fun for me. But nowadays I have to say no to more than the most of them I'm, I'm developing three or four projects at the same time. And I, uh, am on Rob Riggle's pilot, uh, for TBS. I'm writing on that. And so there's a bunch of stuff that I'm doing right now in the book and shit. It's like, it's been a good feeling to finally have that feeling I had with Donald D and Mac 10, which is like, Oh, this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. Not just take shit because it pays well or not just take shit. Cause it'll look good on the resume. Now I can actually relax and feel uh, confident with everything I'm, I'm taking. So I, I'm very curious. Um, you know, what is your daily routine uh, when you're met, you have this many projects? This well, many things? nowadays, cause the book is crazy. So, um, it's all worked out per hour, basically. Like I know, you know, I still work on the gallery stuff, mostly marketing and promotional things. So I'm, I'm really doing a lot of the social media and managing that and, and curating that space. So I'll give myself two hours a day on that for sure. 
And so you're, you're, you're compartmentalizing everything. Everything. Everything gets compartmentalized. So from the moment you wake up, take yeah. us, and I'm sure that evolves depending on what's happening. Yeah, I'm waking up around 6.30. I'm, I'm allowing myself to relax for an hour because I know that won't come later. And then at 7.30, I'm back on emails and responding. And, and you know, even these little things, like I opened this pin company called Patty LaPelle with, with my, my, my uh, ex-girlfriend, uh, Melissa. Uh, we opened this this pin company that I thought would just be like a bit, really, more than anything. Like, let's make a couple of them. And if I don't sell them, I'll give them to friends. And, you know, five months later, we're selling thousands of them. So that becomes part of the compartmentalizing. Mm-hmm. Like Melissa has to come and do shipping for an hour. I have to help for an hour. That's become an hour. So that's that. And then, okay, I have to, like, even as stupid, like, like the book company, Random House and Crown, uh, we're like, you should open a Snapchat. So I open a Snapchat. I don't really know what to do on it because I'm 36. <laughs> but every day I've been writing a rap. I've been writing just four lines of a rap and putting it up there. And I don't know what fuck's going to come of it, but like I've been doing that and that's 20 minutes. So I know 20 minutes a day I have to do that. I know I have podcasts on certain times that are an hour. So those things and lunch, you know, those, those things I'm sort of just making sure those times get allotted and that that's how I'm doing it. I haven't been able to run, which is a problem because that's a major thing for me. I have that to, seems to be day. another theme uh, for productive, successful, happy people. I have to. It's so funny yeah. this year. I watch, Two of my favorite shows. I love BoJack Horseman so, so oh, much so on Netflix, good. purely because it also like speaks to me mm-hmm. very much about being peaking young and trying to figure out what you're going to do after. And then I like girls a lot of like both shows and both end with running, mm-hmm. which is super mm-hmm. weird this year. It's not a spoiler for anyone. It's just like both characters have decided to run in their life to try to fix something. And I was like, fuck, man, that's exactly that's how I started. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you, you there is something about it. And I'm such a, a I love it. Well, it's, it's, I mean, I'm not, and also hopefully it's not a spoiler, but you do it every day and it gets easier. It, and it does. And that's, and that's how everything feels for me. That and then running is sort of the parallel, sort of like the metaphor that I needed and I still need. Um, um to backtrack just a little bit, <laughs> let's break down that lunch. Yeah. What, what are we talking? What's a typical lunch? Uh, and spare no details. Yeah. Yeah. No, nowadays, uh, because I'm, I've been doing a lot of, I, I don't eat shit. So that's the good news. Um, I would never get anyone eating shit. Yeah, please. Um, I did in my career for a while. Uh, but in this case, I don't eat junk food. I don't, I try to keep, you know, whole foods is obviously like a big, uh, white guy staple, but like, that's where I'm going a lot. And, and, uh, there's a rice bowl place I really like near the gallery that I'm eating at a lot. And like, I'm trying M cafe and I'm trying to like, um, sandwiches. I eat a lot. Even if Jimmy John's isn't great for me, I'll still stop by cause it takes two minutes and I like it the way it tastes like mm-hmm. those kind of things. Um, I'm making sure to eat every day because I know at 36, it's a lot different than when I was like 25. Mm-hmm. I have to eat or I'm going to pass out. Um, so that's that. And then dinners nowadays, I'm sort of going out with friends a lot, but you know, I don't know if that's as good of a story. I'm sure. doing Doughboys later tonight with Weiger and, and Mike Mitchell, which is like a podcast where you talk about chain restaurants. Oh, that's funny. So I ate Yoshinoya twice yesterday. Oh, geez. Like a fucking monster. Yeah. Gross. Twice. Mm-hmm. Was that part of the assignment? Well, here's the thing. Yoshinoya is the restaurant we're, we're going into. Yoshinoya opened a new, like an idea on La Cienega. So I went to that one, but that's not Yoshinoya, you know, it's like a new idea they're trying. So I was like, oh, I've got to go do the What's other one. What's the new Yoshinoya concept? It's like Chipotle. Mm-hmm. So you show up and you pick the bowl, you pick the entree, you pick the middle. Oh, thing. Yeah. It's like that. So it's not like that at the dingy one on Santa Monica and Vine. Okay, Yoshinoya. Getting yeah, with the time. Killing times. it. No, that's I don't what know. people it, want. Choices. I, yeah. Two different ratings. One this is, is the perfect transition into the next topic sure um making decisions yeah and how tough it is and i know for me personally if i'm not surrounded by people that are saying jamie make a decision right now that i'm i'm gonna be useless but it seems like the cornerstone of of 
your productivity is you're able to quickly make decisions. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the second opinion though. Very much so. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially with like, even in like a small pin design, I'll send it to Melissa and this is right. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? And then if she says, I go, this isn't right. She goes, no, it's right. I go, tell me why it's right. And then she'll have to sell me on why it's right. That helps a ton because you have to sort of trust those things. And when they don't come in right, all right, well, they're the blame. And then they take the blame and, and I've done the same. And I guess, I mean, to further on that, it's like, you know, whether it's deciding on a pin or deciding on the next career move, yeah. like how much time, and I'm sure that varies from thing to thing, but I think so many artists just get mired in, you know, two months trying to figure out what's next turns into a year or two years and you yeah. haven't done anything. So. Yeah. The gallery is, I guess, a good way of sort of explaining that is that we curate the shows about a year in advance. So I don't have much time to think about it. And so we'll sit down, Katie and I, you know, a couple times a year and just kick it out. Mm-hmm. And then if you make, if you do something that doesn't work out the way it is, well, you didn't have much time. Right. And so it's, it didn't out in three weeks. So you have to live with it. And that's, um, that's helped me a lot as far as like mind frame. Mm-hmm. So something didn't work. Okay. You know, I didn't feel that way when rap failed. That's right. for sure. So over time it's gotten better. Like you can't do, you can't beat me worse than that did. So I'll be fine. Totally. Yeah. So running and then do you have any sort of meditation practice or anything? Very like little, just that morning. I'd like more, but I don't, I haven't really implemented it in. So we've I've always wanted to, to spend that dumb amount of money on the David Lynch thing, but I just don't. On uh, Transcendental. Yeah. yeah. I've always wanted to. You know, the book is great. I'm sure well, everything he does is great. Everything that they say it's involved in I, sounds great to me. I just have to commit. Well, maybe that'll be next, but you mm-hmm. seem to be figuring it out without that. Yeah. Running. Yeah. Really is, man. I wish I could, I wish I could say something else that doesn't sound as elementary. No, but. Well, we had Brent Forrester who, um, his resume as a writer and show producer is insane. From and he does show. running. And he's just an advocate of running and swimming, but swimming out would be great too. But running man, really, oof, just that, just the feeling of being confident enough. I, 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 I'm not feeling well right now. And I fell actually while running, hmm. which is a total nightmare. Some cuts and bruises. Yeah. Uh, I felt pretty bad. And so I haven't gotten out yet, but I will, but I was doing three and a half miles a day. That's great. Yeah. Pretty consistent. Just outside door, outdoor yeah. running? Uh, sunset in Santa Monica. You'll see me running. You'll think I'm trying to get a hooker, but I'm actually running. Do you have like a Fitbit? And getting a hooker. Huh? Do you have like a Fitbit? Are you? No, I just know it's three and a half. I don't know. Just know it's three and a half miles. I don't even turn on my phone thing like people do. No, I've had it for a minute. Steps, steps. Does it steps. really help you though? No. Yeah, it doesn't. It help. probably drives me crazy. I had an Apple Watch for like five days. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Well, I know I run three and a half miles. You don't need great. to tell me that, you dumb watch. <laughs> I know it. So three and a half miles, and then so, what's the rest of your day like? So you're compartmentalizing all these things. Like, I'm take us through all the way to going yeah. to sleep. Well, once once seven o'clock or eight o'clock hits, I'm I'm pretty confident my day's over. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big basketball guy. It's pretty much my favorite thing in the world. Lakers? Uh, no, no, I'm a Clippers diehard. Yeah, Clippers my whole diehard. life. Yeah, well, I didn't have money, so I couldn't go see Lakers games. Well, it's it's, it's cool <laughs> growing up in LA to be a Clipper fan. Well, no, I was, I mean, now it is. I mean, it wasn't, but it, no. it, it has more credibility. Oh, well, now it's the best, you know, it's a lot better than being a Lakers fan. But, but as a kid, you know, the, the people who had Lakers tickets were the rich people in my school. Mm-hmm. And so I, my dad was spending $7 on tickets and we were getting in the 200 section growing up. So that was thrilling. See Benoit Benjamin. Oh my God. Ron Harper, Danny Manning. I could give you all the names <laughs> and I loved it. Even though they wouldn't win, I'd still love them. And so, um, I, I grew a, extreme passion for basketball. I, I really, really appreciate it. And it's, it's a temple for me. Mm-hmm. And so I can watch that game and relax. That's my meditation. Um, and at the same time I can answer some emails and I can do some things that I still needed to do. And some of those things that I pushed off that didn't compartmentalize building out an email for the gallery or, um, responding some pin emails or, um, book stuff, you know, things like I wrote the book in those kind of periods. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of is my cleanup area. 
and then by nine or ten, I'm I'm done. You sleep? Uh, I'll get to bed around eleven thirty. So six <coughs> and a half, seven hours of sleep. Six hours. I really got really specific. This yeah. is the first time I've uh, taken a guest on a journey through their own day. Well, Fast Company, it's funny. Like Fast Company wrote this article. They like emailed me and they're like, "We really want to do an article on you." And it was about this. They didn't understand how I was able to do all these things. And so it was like seven ways of productivity with a guy who doesn't seem like he stops. And I was like, well, I do stop. It's just, I don't let the brain stop. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I, I'm always, and also like the big thing for me is that I don't let things sit. Mm-hmm. So like if there's an email I want to put on a lot of my friends and even business partners, they let shit sit, man. Why do you want to face this in three days? I just fucking write it back now. Right. And get it out of the way. And that's like that getting things done, you know, the GTD thing, which yeah. I, which I looked into and I, 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 I studied it for a couple of weeks and I took what I wanted out of it. A lot of my friends have really gotten into it and it's really helped them, but, um, it really just get it fucking mark it off the list or put it in another list. Right. And that's it. Don't, don't let it sit in between. Yeah. There, I mean, I've, I'm a proponent of GTD and, um, there's a, something called Zen to done, mm-hmm. which, um, is a, a pared down version. Yeah. That's very helpful. And I mean, this is especially fascinating for me because at any given time I'm booking this club and producing shows and podcasts and yeah. And you're looking at other shit too. I know you have, you have your eyes on other things. Totally. And you know, trying to write scripts and yeah. only things. And it's, you know, I do the best I can, but it's, it's trying to organize all these things. It's crazy. But what I learned through GTD is, uh, and not to sound like I'm pushing Scientology on anyone, but <laughs> G- with GTD, I felt like. 90% of my problem was that I was thinking about the things I needed to do. Mm-hmm. Once you push those off as out of your mind, because you've, you've either written them down or you've compartmentalized them correctly, it opens up so much mm-hmm. to just not worry about those things and, and worry about, Oh, I have to do this. Right. It's like, no, get that out. Get that out. Either you wrote it down or you did it, or you pushed it to another date, just set it mm-hmm. and then, and then open up for other things. And man, did that help? Yeah, I'm sure. It's interesting. Uh, Andrew, who's producing the yeah. podcast, he actually um, sent me the article. The, the, oh, the Fasco. Article. So I, I yeah. read parts of that and um, yeah, that was fascinating. It was a cool article for, for them to do. I, I didn't expect, when they first reached out, I didn't, I didn't know that was going to be the thing. But it does, um, allotting time, really, I mean, it just like, that was the answer. I didn't have much of an answer other than running and saying, well, I know a certain amount of hours a day I do this, a certain amount of hours I do this and I luckily don't have much fall through the net. And even getting more specific and thinking about some of the issues I have is like when you spend that hour uh, writing, I'm assuming, you know, eliminating all distractions is, is important. Yeah. Like yeah. Not having a thousand windows open. Having and, an hour. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't give it as much time as other people will. And I don't know if that hurts my work or if it helps it. But uh, like I had a proposal, like a, I had like a, a write up to do last week on a idea I've been pitching around to really early stages, but I had to just write for the producers we've brought in. I had to just write something to help internally. And, uh, I pushed it off for a day or two cause I didn't have time. And then I went, well, Thursday I'll hit it. And I spent an hour on it. And I was like, I could put more time into this. Mm-hmm. It's not going to get any better really. Right. And so I said, it's internal. It's not like not a big deal. So I just turned it in and giving it that hour with uninterrupted helped a lot. Yeah. But if I were to say like, I need to give this three hours, I can't, I can't do that right now. Yeah. So, so knowing I mean, your own threshold for, yeah, for what you have open. Totally. So, with everything that's happened in your career and where you're at now, what um, advice would you give? And I, I mean, I think this whole podcast has been nothing but advice, but uh, what advice would you give yeah, young artists as just as far as the, the art of saying yes and no and getting people to you know move forward on the things yeah. you want to do? I mean, for me, it's the theme of the book mm-hmm. and the book is it. The rap is the, is the foreground. That's really what the, like that's, that's just the situation you're reading. It's really about anything. Mm-hmm. And the point is, is I was a fish out of water. 
I was thrown into something and I faced a dead end. And the goal of the book, it's very earnest. I'm like, I'm a very, like I'm a snarky person, but this book is not that snarky. It's very real. I did not want to retell this story and be like, isn't it funny? I was a Jewish rat. Like I don't play that game early. Mm -hmm. I say I was fucking engulfed in it. Like I lived it. I wanted to be famous as fuck for rapping. That's why I took a million dollars. You know, I, I, I wanted it. And so for me, the advice I give everyone and, and the really tone of the book is that when you face these dead ends, it, it defines so many people. That dead end becomes people's whole lives. Mm-hmm. Like, it, oh, I didn't make it and I, failure. And they think about all the things they did wrong and who, who fucked them over. And, and I just, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You got to just go, that wasn't the right avenue. And you just have to stand up and go, but I believe in this and I believe in what I'm going to do. And I know what my body's telling me to do. And then you do it. And that's, and that's like my favorite comedians are those people. You know, I, I, this is a weird person to shout out, but Brett Gelman, mm-hmm. uh, I saw he's in the new Twin Peaks. Uh, I saw him on the cast list and I've been friends with Brett for years and Brett is not, he's not, he's a square peg. He's very hard to, he's so funny on stage. He's so funny in everything he does and and he's not going to conform to fit in a room. He's just not. He's going to be himself the whole time and it's going to fucking pay off mm-hmm. because he's so talented and so funny and uh, and and I want to see him on the Twin Peaks list. I go, no shit. Yes, he's going to be in Twin yeah. Peaks. That's a for sure move. And there's other artists like uh, comedians like Kate Berlant, who's also you know, so funny and, and hard to find in a room. But these people who stick to their guns and are funny and talented and know what they want and know that they're going to get it. Those people. And that's a lot to do with Kanye. If you read the book, is that these people know where they're going and you can't tell them differently and they're going to stick with it and it's going to pay off. That's Absolutely inspiring, and and it's absolutely true. Yeah, um, and I think that's you know full, full circle. It's having that unique voice and just trusting in who you are. And just going back, you mentioned like you know your body tells you no. Yeah, and I mean literally, is is there a physical manifestation? Like, what do you feel? Yeah, I feel. I mean, it's it's it, it's very easy. It's it, sometimes I'll ignore it and try to make myself think it didn't happen, but it's an anxiety and it's a it's a repulsion mm-hmm. of the thing that's happening, which is like this isn't right. This isn't right. And that'll happen all the time to me. And sometimes I'll ignore it and then watch the failure. But most of the time I'll go, well, this isn't right. And I'll move on. Um, but yeah, that, that it is a, it is a physical feeling of nope, you know, and knowing that pretty fast. And you're in this unique place um, that's becoming less unique, but um, I think it's the, the changing landscape of art in general, but where you do, you know, you, like I said, wear all these hats, but you're, you're in this perfect crossover. And it's a world that I love of where comedy meets music meets art and all these things. Yeah. I, I never have believed. And also I had something taken from me so young. Like I had this job I thought I was going to excel and taken from me and I was not willing to have it happen again. So I'm not picking one thing mm-hmm. and, and uh, I'm only going to pick things I like. And it's weird because most of the stuff I work in are things I liked when I was 12 years old. I love pop culture my whole life. I mean, we did, we, we did an art show with, you know, Disney, man. I did an art show. I worked for Mattel. I did He-Man and, and Hot Wheels mm-hmm. uh, consulting. Like I've, I've been into this shit my whole life. It's no different. Hip hop's been in my blood. I've been writing since I was a kid. So like, I've never, I don't want you to do one thing. I just, just as, as long as one of them isn't club promoting, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like as long as you're not like a piece of shit doing it and you're not like calling yourself a hyphenate and stuff, just do what you like. Yeah. And like kids nowadays, like they don't care. Like Brandon Wardell is a friend of mine and he's like a young child stand up who's so funny. He's like mm-hmm. 22 years old or something and he's going to blow up and he's so funny. And I hired him when I, I was head writing a show at VH1 this last year and we put him on the show and like, he doesn't give a shit. He doesn't care what you're doing. Like, he doesn't care about anything we're talking about. Right. Like he's like, I don't even know what a hyphen it is. Like he just, he's, he, he just, made t-shirts and he, you know, he, that's just what they were raised on. They were raised on Diddy doing 7,000 things. They don't see it like we do. 
So I think it's, it's about understanding that like, you're just doing shit you're passionate about. Well, one thing that I, I think about a lot and it's one of my, you know, kind of my rackets, my, uh, uh, is it going to almost the help self-help and becoming obsessed with these things as a way of, you know, putting off actually just doing the work. So you're saying that's bad? I, I think uh, self-help and, you know, just productivity and being into that stuff. That's is good. Great. But, um, but you're saying you use it to push off the other stuff? As, yeah. I'll spend three hours researching GTD right. instead of, you know, just doing that. And, huh. and, and spend, I mean, it's, it's the best way to fail, I guess. Cause at least you can use it later. I mean, it's, I don't think that's that bad. I mean, also like there are stages in your life when those things take precedence over the things you're trying to do. Yeah. I think there needs to be periods where you're, you, you know, recalibrating and, and I'm in that in dating. Work. That's where I am in dating. What, what how? Uh, I could date or whatever, but like I, I, I'm not like, I got to do the three hours of GTD about dating. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm not like, that's not where I'm at right now. So I could rush it and push it or whatever, but like, I'm not, it's not really, I guess similar to what you're saying. I'd rather procrastinate and learn about myself All right. than actually go out and do it. What do you um date on? <laughs> oh, I mean, I'd use dumb shit. I mean, I don't even use anything now, but I mean, I've been on that weird app that like, you know, you have to you're be talking, like, your tenders, no, I'm not on your that. Bumbles. Yeah. I tried Bumble. I don't necessarily like it. And then I, I've been on this other one that's like a gatekeeper kind of one. That's super yeah. dramatic. Yeah. It's like you get accepted in it and shit. And that's kind of funny because it's like. Oh, gatekeeping in the world of dating. That's kind of what, what it is. What is it called? I should have them on the show. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it. You know I what? I don't know. I don't know if I'm allowed. Well, I feel like. Tell it, me. I'll tell you off air. Okay. But it's like, a, it's like, a, it's like an app that like you, it's like a. You have to be know. accepted. I, I know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. And so like I. So like, that's cool. I mean, it's funny to see like some of the people on there. You're just like, holy shit. So you're in, you got, you got accepted. Yeah. 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 And are you seeing celebrities and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. You, yeah. Not and that I, I went on like one date and the girl was incredible. She was so great and so cool and like funny and smart and willing. I just, I'm not I'm like fucking, I'm rushing it. So I'm like, I'd rather just like you're saying exactly about getting shit done. It's like, uh, that's exactly how I feel about dating. Literally. Exactly. <coughs> Well, you know, and the same thing with like you were talking about with your gallery, you know, like you have to fit into the parameters that you've built in your life to get those things done. And sometimes 100%. dating is not, well, that thing seems like a good place to wrap up. Yeah. Why don't you about just my field of life? Absolutely. And, yeah. 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 And <laughs> Jensen had a, oh, I can talk for hours about that. That'll be the next time. Yeah. Yeah. We could have our own podcast. We should <laughs> put one more thing on our plate. Yeah. The sure. dating podcast. Sure. You did a show here on Saturday. I did. It's attitude error. It's a show like in a, in a weird way, it's similar to a lot of things we're talking about, which is like, I'm trying to feel out what it is and it's going to take me time to know what it is. And, uh, it's me watching nineties wrestling clips that people think are really good. Cause people talk about this era called attitude era. They talk about it like it was the golden era of hip of, of, of wrestling. And then you watch it and it's like misogynistic and racist and shitty and it's Jay Leno wrestles and <laughs> these terrible things happen. And so we watch those clips with people who either know wrestling or don't know wrestling. Uh, and then, excuse me. And then we, uh, we talk about it in a funny way. So it's like, I'm really developing just like an idea. We did baby talk Mm -hmm. for years, which was a show with me and Dan Levy. And it started the same way, which is like, we wanted to have three comedian friends and us sit with a child and interview them. And that's really where it started. And then we ended up filming nine of them with Blake Griffin and John Mulaney and all these great people. Um, but it started from very humble beginnings and that's sort of where I'm at with this, which is very much workshopping, uh, and Greg Barrett, who uh, I had come seen a show here, I watched him doing the same thing with his mind. And I was like, man, that's, I'm really uh, impressed with the ability to do that here. And that was where I'm sort of going. It's like, I just want to know what it is more. No, that's great. And that, it's literally called the lab for that very reason. Yeah, yeah. And there was something happened in the show that I didn't get to see you before or after the show, but um, yeah. where- I dislocated my hand. 
Oh, that, that's I did do two that. things happened in the show. Yeah, so you just dislocated your hand. hand. Yeah, I did. How did that happen? Well, it's where I fell. Oh. So uh, where I fell is it's very fragile right now. And so I, I went to pick up the mic and I hit the table, which by the way, I've done twice now. It's just like one of those things where you stub your toe and you keep hitting it. Mm-hmm. I stubbed my hand again, the same spot. And right at the beginning of the show, and I was like, fuck, and it was bleeding. Oh, shit. Yeah. Like that's the new cut there is from, is from that night. But anyway, go on. Um, what happened? War battles. And then there was a, a, a crazy table. The old man? Well, the old man, he, he's, um, he's, he's there a lot, weekend. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's he the was, person I've seen in the me. lab. He's, yeah. um, he's usually in the main room. He's here. fine with me. But um, there was a, a, a rowdy table. Yeah. So th- these are the guys who left that I made a joke with Paul Rodriguez. I didn't even see the moment. I just saw them getting that's kicked out. That's what you're talking out. about. Yeah. So that's what you're talking about. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, that shit doesn't bother me in a weird way. Like I was able to make a joke because we were making so much fun of Jay Leno and that was like funny because like it's a room he's, I mean, he's here a lot. I mean, not it's anymore, but pictures, it's right, I said, in back, I said yeah. right in the back. I said, funny enough, we're going to shit on him all night and his picture is literally what I'm staring at. Um, and so what the joke was when they got kicked out, I was like, uh, I was like, that was Paul Rodriguez. He's furious about the Leno joke. <laughs> um, and so like, I don't, that doesn't bother me because also like, this isn't my one man hour long HBO hope. Mm-hmm. This was a show I'm la- I'm labbing it, man. I'm fucking learning what's good and what's what I'm trying to figure out what works for it and who's who's good for it and what we're doing. And and you know, Justin Donaldson, who produces a show with me, like he does Tournament of Nerds and, and a lot of shows that we've worked on together. And like we're just trying to fucking figure it out. Like, I don't care if that person, you know, like I I I know there's certain people who love it. We did really well numbers wise. Mm-hmm. And so like that to me is like they're everyone's with me on the journey. Our podcast is similar. We have a podcast called Get Up on This. And like, we have something going on right now where listeners are sending in rap songs to beef with each other, to battle. Mm-hmm. And it is, I can't explain how amazing it is. And it came from nowhere. It came from just fucking around. And so that's, my comedy has always sort of been that way. That's incredible. There's three other projects that I wasn't even aware of. Yeah. That just got dropped. A lot of shit, man. So I'll be wrapping this up thematically with a little bullet pointed list, I believe after this. Mm-hmm. But uh, this was great. Thanks, Thanks for man. No, me. thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by what you guys have been doing here at the lab and, and I'm, I'm, I'm stoked to even have had anything to do with it and see shows here. Like I just, it's, it's a lot to do with what I've done my whole life, which is like test something till you're confident and then stick with it. Cause you're confident. And, and just to go back to what you mentioned, this show will never end, but, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, what you loved when you're 12 years old and it's an old trope, like what you loved around that age. And to this day, like musical theater, hip hop, yeah. music, and those are all becoming, you know, a major part of the ether of this club. Yeah. And 16 Tonys in. later. Yes. <laughs> so Jensen, thank you for being here. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Bye. Gatekeeper. So that was a conversation with Jensen Carp on the podcast you are listening to currently known as Gatekeeper. Pretty enjoyable, right? Well, I promised at the very end there would be a bullet pointed list. And to be honest, I didn't know exactly what I was talking about. But I'm a man of my word, so here we go. Bullet point number one, Jensen's the best, right? That was fun. And bullet point number two, I totally forgot my outro for the show. If you listen to the show, you know that I have my little mantra for the very end. And so I'm going to say those words right now. Work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional. Be undeniable. And be cool as fuck always. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network, the Hollywood Improv, Andrew Steven, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode.
And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab.